Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along? I won't do anything wrong. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along? We indu- indeed do have breaking news from outer space with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. Breaking news, actually, Professor, we have broken news or news about <laughs> breaking. So, and direct from the moon. Uh, tell us what's happening on the moon today, please. Uh, well, so as we have touched uh, on this uh, topic uh, before as well, there is a lot of, uh, there, there's a lot of interest on the moon. Uh, in particular towards the South Pole of the moon. And just recently... Because of uh, the water? A week because ago, of the ice? Because, right. So the South Pole, the interest is because there are what is what are called permanently shadowed regions. So this is the place where the sun never shines. Uh, and so that's where in those craters, when water gathers, uh, or sort of like, you know, because there are meteoroids, there are uh, comets that may obstruct the moon and pieces of smaller meteorites also they bring in, they bring water there, but it doesn't get evaporated because there is no sunlight. And the reason why there is no sunlight is because the moon has almost no tilt. And so if you have craters over there, which there are on the moon because it doesn't have an atmosphere, so there are a lot of craters, those craters, some parts of those always remain in the shadow, in the shade. And so the water never evaporates. In fact, that actually, I'm getting sidetracked by that, but it's actually really interesting because that water is there for millions of years. I mean, just think about it, right? Like, you know, millions of years it has gathered and it's just there in the form of ice. And so because the uh, both American and the Chinese alliances are planning on uh, having a permanent settlement on the moon, they need water. And so South Pole for that reason and the North Pole, but but mostly the interest is towards the South Pole because they think that there is more water there. That's where there are going to be um, lunar settlements, settlements on the moon over there. And for that reason, there is an interest in going there. And uh, yeah. And there have been some unpersoned uh, expeditions to the moon recently with... Uh, decidedly mixed results. Tell us about them, if you would, please. So we would think that going to the moon would be pretty straightforward, but actually it's not. Uh, and uh, and that's, the, that's a big takeaway uh, from that, that yes, we have um, space missions. Humans have been to the moon several times from 1969 to 1972 that was the apollo program but it's been over they were very successful it's been over 50 years right and but it reminds us that even now it is hard to get to the moon and the success record is close to about 50 percent because uh half of the missions have failed Uh, you have russian missions that have failed there was an israeli mission uh that failed and just earlier this year there was a private mission, astrobotics technology, that actually didn't make it to the moon and ended up burning up in the in Earth's atmosphere. However, there have been some notable successes. Last year, India's Chandrayaan mission successfully landed on the moon. Chinese missions have been very successful on the moon. And for the first time, just last week, an American private mission, by Intuitive Machines, 
Uh, they actually landed a mission on the moon. The lander is called Odysseus. Uh, however, the lander is actually, when it landed, it got tilted and it's to the side. Nevertheless, it is considered a relatively successful landing. And I should mention, this mission landed towards the south pole of the moon, close to that. So explain this, if you would, please. The lander goes through what stages? I'd like to hear how the lander gets from Earth to the moon and how it lands there. And then the last thing it has to do is it, when it lands, it has to stay upright, but it doesn't. It falls over. That's, that has to be heartbreaking. But give us a bit of the stages of how it gets from a launching pad on Earth to the, to the moon. Yeah, so the big the so again so when we think about the moon we have to think about issues that are different from the earth and one of the biggest one is that it doesn't have an atmosphere so normally if you are thinking about going someplace and maneuvering your landing you can actually use uh the atmosphere to slow down and uh, and maneuver but on the moon, it doesn't have an atmosphere, so it is really done through uh, through rocket fires. Like you know, you actually change it, you change your trajectory based upon that, and it's a bit farther away. You are talking about uh, a few uh, hundred thousand miles, two hundred thousand miles, roughly, right? And so, in this particular case, for example, the intuitive machine, they had a an instrument that could tell you how far away is the land. And so that's when how you can sort of like, you know, figure out, okay, it is that far, you have to slow down based upon that. And you have to touch down very softly. Their instrument, as it turns out, the key instrument that was supposed to manage the landing, it never got off the safety zone when it got when it was launched from the earth. So actually, it wasn't working. The key instrument that was supposed to uh, manage the landing. However, very creatively, they also had a NASA payload. They had some instruments that were taking, including one NASA payload that was just going in there, in the spacecraft. It wasn't supposed to actually function as uh, leading the landing. They actually managed to switch that on. That is actually really fascinating. And then, and they found this out, by the way, that it wasn't working only, I think, uh, a few hours before landing or something like that. And so two hours before the landing, they had to send new software instructions to the spacecraft. And that is insane that here you are about to land on the moon. Two hours before they said, okay, to the spacecraft, forget about everything we said before about how to land. Here are new instructions coming in, use that to land. And so they managed actually, and so there was a little bit of, uh, of a hiccup regarding that, and it did land, except they think that, I mean, the lander has six legs. One of the legs caught one of the sides of the boulders or sort of like, you know, or the edge, and then it actually tilted over. And this is the problem. This is the issue over there that from a distance, the moon is littered with with uh, with boulders and other things and stuff like that so if you are landing over there and if there is even a small thing you can tip over the japanese lander slim uh which actually went to the equatorial region of the moon it was designed to make a precise landing like two within a 
sort of like you know football field uh, target zone and actually it did that is incredible but one of the reasons was that it was using a technology that it uses the camera on the spaceship and like you know and figure out what would be the best place to land although it, it also got tilted over uh, ju just uh, sideways uh, so it just shows you how hard it is uh, by the way the uh, first landing human landing and uh, the apollo 11 one that also had issues and neil armstrong had actually taken manual control of the spacecraft because it looked like it may actually not go uh, as they were thinking and they were thinking of aborting it based upon the way the spacecraft was going all of this is to say when there is a landing when there is even soft landing even when you tilt over a little we should just appreciate how hard it is and thinking about human sending humans back to the moon you cannot i think you cannot do that with a 50 percent success ratio i think you will really have to make that in and it's up and it's a hard thing and china by the way so far has been successful it has another mission changa six mission this year which is going to the far side of the moon they are the only ones who have landed on the far side with a spacecraft this time they're going to land not just land but also take samples and bring them back so if if they they've had so far a hundred percent record so that would be interesting how um how they do that was the purpose of the intuitive lander to bring things back or just to send data what was it what's it doing up what what's what's its purpose in being there so it was carrying about 12 instruments six private and six from nasa uh including um a really fascinating experiment uh, dealing with astronomy so the moon would be an excellent place for example to do radio astronomy especially on the far side because you won't have in radio interference from the earth and so there was an instrument that actually looked for a particular type of measurements like you know that how much interference would there be potentially from the solar radiation for example for radio astronomy so this was one kind of uh, a test uh, that was there uh there there was a really cool thing that uh, there was a, a, a camera designed by graduate students from Embry Riddle Aeronautical University and they were planning on taking pictures of the spacecraft landing so as it was supposed to be landing it was supposed to spit out this camera and the camera would have looked back and actually took pictures of the spacecraft. Wait, wait a second. You're telling us that the spacecraft, the intuitive, can take selfies? That was the plan, except that because, as I mentioned, all of those issues going on, so they did not release that camera. And so you only have a few pictures directly from there. Uh, so there were a lot of these, uh, these uh, payload instruments there. Again, we have talked about this. To me, a bit of a concern that comes in. I mean, they also have private payload, uh, including testing for potential uh, cloud storage devices. Uh, and the idea is that you can store material on the moon, which may be safer from hackers here on Earth. So there are these type of things that are over there. And so this time it's okay. But uh, one of the Again, my concerns, like, you know, sort of like, you no know, pet peeve regarding that is with these private missions, uh, sometimes you will not know what other things are going there because those are private payloads. Or if the military space force starts to send things, we will not hear about what is going on the moon. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, so there were 12 
payload, uh, 12 instruments, six were private and six were NASA. We are speaking with Professor Hampshire College Professor and Astronomer Salman Hamid. I want to ask him two things. I'm not sure I'm going to do this, but I may ask him to explain to us the difference between the dark side of the moon and the far side of the moon, because I can never keep it straight. And also, I want to know about the pieces of planet Mercury that were just discovered here on Earth. We'll be right back. Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer astronomer Salman Hamid. I want to know, Professor, what's the status now today of the lander on the moon, the one, the the mission from the United States, that's the intuitive, and the other lander that's there? Are they now functionally kaput, or might they wake up? Uh, no. Uh, so, uh, so, okay, so the intuitive machines one, because it was uh, a little bit at an angle, it could not charge up fully. So normally these missions, and this is, again, one of those things to uh, think about for the moon, that these missions usually are last for 10 to 15 days. And the reason is, because that's how long the sunlight is, the day on the moon is. And and then there is a two weeks of night. And it gets very, very, very cold at nighttime and you don't have uh, sunlight to charge up things. So usually these missions, when they plan, they expect to work for about 10 to 15 days and then that is it. Now with intuitive machines, because it was at an angle, what they said, like, you know, was like that it didn't charge fully to operate all of 10 to 14 days, but it has managed to do it okay. But now it's going into long sleep. They think they will try to revive it after the next day comes on the moon. But, uh, but the likelihood is, uh, is small. Uh, the same thing happened with the Indian mission, the Chandrayaan, um, the Slim mission, and all of those ones. I mean, usually they cannot they're not designed to withstand because for that you will need more technology to withstand the cold temperature that comes in at uh, when the sun is not there and it's lunar night uh, and so most of these missions are designed just for the day so they can't just set an alarm clock say the sun is up time to get up it's a little more complicated than that yeah the alarm doesn't work i mean the alarm you can set the alarm but the problem is whether you wake up or not uh, it's like real life <laughs> okay. Well, while we're talking about the lunar night, for those of us in the back of the class who had trouble reading our notes afterwards, could you explain again for me the difference and the meaning of the far side of the moon and whether or not there actually is something properly called the dark side of the moon? Yeah. So, 
I mean, I, I love the album, Dark Side of the Moon, of Pink Floyd. And I think they did a good job, except that it also generated this uh, confusion in there. So, I mean, you can think of Dark Side, you can think of when, when there is nighttime on the moon. And that, could la that lasts usually about two weeks, roughly. So, yeah, there is a dark side because that's where the sun is not there at nighttime. And just like you can think about the Earth having a dark side when you have the sun on the other side. But what it usually is meant by uh, when people think about it is the far side of the moon because from the earth, we only see the same face of the moon. And that has to do with something called tidal locking, meaning to say that the moon's rotation is tied the way earth is rotating. So by the time it makes one cycle, we see the same face of the moon as it is going around the earth so it takes around 28 days or 29 days to go around the earth and that's the cycle of its day and night so we never see the other side of the moon and that is the far side we only see one side one face of the moon and so and 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 that that's the reason when i mentioned that one of the chinese missions the only one to have landed on the far side, that was a really amazing feat because you are not communicating directly with the earth. You have to have a relay station around the moon that is giving instructions to the far side because you cannot see the far side directly from the earth. And the far side of the moon is always the far side of the moon from our perspective here on earth. And that is because of its rotation and its synchronization of that with the Earth's rotation as well? Am I, how am I doing, Professor? That's, that's exactly right. So it is always the far side. But it's not necessarily dark because it, it goes through the same cycle of day and night as the entire moon does. And the cycle of day and night on the moon is about 28 days, or Earth days. Okay. We're going to return to this in the AP version of this course in some other, <laughs> some other show. I'd like to ask you, I was fascinated to read this, a piece of what might have been planet Mercury was found outside Berlin recently. Is that right? Is that true? Well, so, so this is a really interesting case. So, so this is a meteoroid, a particular type of meteoroid, uh, which was actually predicted that it's going to fall. It's a small meteorite about the size of a meter, meter-sized meteorite. And there was some amateur astronomer which was already looking at its trajectory early this year on January 21st. And it burned through the atmosphere, became a fireball, and then it landed. So we knew that you, people can actually find some pieces of it. And there are meteor hunters. And they went over there, including one from the SETI Institute at the US, actually a professor went over there to look for they could find the trajectory and they were like, it must have fallen somewhere around here. And they found the pieces on January 25th. And here is the thing, the way the meteor, meteorite or the meteor burned through the atmosphere, the color of it, they could actually tell what kind of material it is made up of. So what they were looking for. This particular meteor, it's a very rare one. It's called an albright. And we think that this kind of meteorite comes from, it was a piece of the planet Mercury. But 
there is a debate about that because the meteorite itself came from the asteroid belt. So the question is, wait a minute. Some people say, well, it may not be from there. But one of the ideas is that perhaps this piece from the like early in the solar system, Mercury, just like the Earth, just like other planets, was also struck by a larger body. It ejected pieces of Mercury. Some of these pieces are in the asteroid belt. And occasionally, occasionally, those pieces, those meteoroids can come back and crash on Earth. These are extremely rare meteoroids. So just give you an example. There are over 70,000 meteoroids that we have found pieces and only 80 have been from uh, or this particular type of brides that we think uh, came from planet Mercury. So we cannot go to the planet Mercury, but we may have found pieces of it here on Earth. Is what may be from planet Mercury now landed on the Earth, is this something that we know about? That this has a Does this have a chemical composition that is something we know, or is this something totally foreign to Earthlings? No, no, no. It is uh, the chemical composition we know. And, and in fact, but it's different from other meteoroids. So usually we expect it to be iron rich or other types of meteoroids. These particular type of meteoroids called aubrites, because of the, there's a town in France called Auber, uh, Aubre, where the first meteorite fell in the 19th century. Fascinating story about that. Uh, but it turns out that the composition of this uh, looks like it's the one that is from mercury so it's not an unusual composition it just it signifies the same composition as from the planet mercury for example magnesium silicates and things like that thank you so much professor salman hamid we really appreciate your insights and sharing with us and i hopefully my and i hope my notes today will be a little better next time we talk about the far side or is it the dark side of the moon coming up artbeat with donabel cassis was troubled by the horrible ass. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mr. Charles Darwin had the goggles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, Andy, did you hear about this one? Tell me, are you locked in the pond? Andy, are you goofing on? More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.